Okay, so we'll jump in. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Um, uh, there, there are a lot of ideas that I want to talk about today, especially larger ideas, um, sort of um, trends in the zeitgeist, uh, meaning to say just uh, things going on in society today that I think um, are, are very, very significant that maybe um, aren't being fully appreciated uh, in terms of the, the spiritual um, evolution that's going on in terms of the history of the world and, and the flourishing of, of, of humanity and, and God consciousness in the world. And, um, you know, we, we Jews believe very, very strongly in evolution. And uh, by, by that, what I mean is that we believe that there is a, uh, a process that is evolving in the world in terms of the awareness and the consciousness of God, starting from the beginning of the world, and over time it's getting stronger and stronger and stronger as the yichud, as the oneness of God becomes revealed to the entire world. Interestingly, you know, everyone knows uh, that the sort of the foundation, if you have to sum up Judaism in a line, if you had to, uh, it would probably be Shema Yisrael, Shema Lokeinu, Shema Echad, that, uh, you know, listen Israel, uh, the, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Um, not everyone knows the Rashi on that, uh, which is uh, that here, O Israel, the Lord, our God, and Rashi says, right now, the Lord Hashem is our God. Meaning to say, we, we know who He is right now. The Lord is one, Hashem Echad. In the future, the entire world will know about the oneness of God. So, believe it or not, the Shema Yisrael is not just a declaration of faith, but it's a timeline in terms of the revelation of God's oneness in the world. Um, and in terms of actual evolution on a, in a Darwinian sense, how do we hold on that? Um, you know, the, the truth is, is that I think it's, uh, it, it really doesn't matter. Um, in other words, once you accept that God created human beings, how God chose to create human beings is up to God. Does he want to start us up with a, an amoeba? and then turn us into a, 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 a fish, and then a, a frog that jumps out of the water, and then into a, a you know, a, 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 a Neanderthal, and then a human being. If God chooses to create us that way, that's God's business. If He wants to create us as a human being from the utmost, an, an all-powerful God can do either. It's certainly within the power of God to do either. You see, where I think people get really confused is, the question is not how God created us. The question is, why did God create us? Why am I here? Not how did I get here. Now that I'm here, which is indisputable, why am I here? What am I doing here? What do I need to accomplish? What is my responsibility to the world and creation? So, so but, but again, the, the bigger headline, the more significant thing in terms of evolution is the, the evolution of, of consciousness. That is, that's the real headline. And I want to talk about that right now, because there are certain, again, certain things that are going on in contemporary society today that, um, that I think deserve to be discussed in, in, uh, in, in some more detail. And, and maybe these are, are new thoughts. They were certainly new to me. I got excited when, when they sort of came to me. But, but let me just sketch out this, this, this timeline, if you will. And we've been discussing this. I, I would recommend anyone who wants to hear more about this. Uh, I gave a talk called uh, a, a Brief History of Light, which was also talking about this similar idea. And in fact, um, 
we'll, we'll maybe touch on uh, light, L-I-G-H-T, a brief history of light. Uh, in terms of the, the original light that was brought into the world and, and how it evolves and what it's going to look like at the end. Um, but anyway, the point is, is that a, a big turning point was, was, uh, was, was the birth of Hasidus, uh, specifically the Baal Shem Tov, and, and the, the nature of the teachings that were brought uh, through him. So, so basically... What is, we've got two sort of very spiritual schools in, in, in Torah. One is uh, Hasidic, Hasidic thought, Hasidut, goes by different uh, pronunciations. Um, the other is something that's uh, more Kabbalistic. So what's the difference between Hasidus and Kabbalah? That's a, an important, uh, because there are zillions of overlaps between the two of them. And a lot of times you can attend a, a, a class in Hasidus, it sounds like you're at a class of Kabbalah. So there's so many overlaps. What, what's, what's the difference between the two of them? So Rabbi Ari Kaplan said it very, very beautifully. He said that, that Kabbalah brings human beings up to God, whereas Hasidus brings God down to mankind. And that's, and so, so Hasidus is something which is what I've sort of dedicated myself um, to study. And it's, it's a very... So like I say, there, there's zillions of overlaps between the two of them. So the, the Baal Shem Tov is coming to explain the, the Ari and uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and the, and the Zohar, but he's putting it into the language of human beings and, and, and everyday occurrences. And, and how to take that light and to integrate it in, in terms of you know, the, the here and the now. Right. Whereas the more sort of Kabbalistic approach, are, it's, it's more you're, you who are planted on earth, are, your head is in the cosmos and you're trying to sort of like manipulate the heavens, if you will, through your actions. But, but, but I, I, my, my, uh, my, my nature is more of a meat and potatoes approach. I mean, which is, uh, would be Hasidus, which is integrating that godliness in the here and now. Both do that, but, but again, different approaches. So, so, so the Baal Shem Tov introduced this, this, this language, this, this way of expressing it, where, where the inner light of the Torah is now being uh, dispersed through, through the entire world. And, and that's, a, that's a big step in terms of, in terms of the advancement toward the, the perfection of mankind. This, this level of, of awareness. Now, now, I want to talk about a couple of cultural trends, which I think are starting to um, point to this. And you see, there's something very, very interesting. Uh, a lot of times, great lights come down, but we don't have vessels to hold the light. I remember Rav Shlomo Karlbach said that in the 1960s, what you had was a lot of light, but there weren't vessels. And then in the 1970s, you had a lot of vessels, but you didn't have that light. So what we're trying to do is bring about light and vessels. In other words, awesome inspiration, awesome beyond, beyond inspiration. But at the same time, the framework, which is the, the Torah, the, the, the mitzvahs, the practice of the, the Torah itself, is the vessels in order to hold the light. So you, you see, a lot of times people, 
let's put it in more conversational terms. The way Rib Shlomo said at one time is, the hardest thing for a person, and really the greatest model, is for a person to have their feet on the ground and their head in the clouds. And for a lot of people, their nature is to have their head in the clouds, but they can't have their feet in the ground, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I, am, I lean more toward that direction. I know someone once described my wife and I, as they said, you know, when I picture the two of you, it's like, I see you like this helium balloon, and she's holding the string. You know, so, so you know, either you find it with your, 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 your mate, or, or you try to integrate it in yourself. Hopefully, hopefully you can do both. Um, or people have their feet on the ground, which means that they're very practical, and they really see things and, and everything like that, but that sort of um, more expansive vision of what's going on, they don't necessarily have. So what you really want to do is you want to be able to, to combine both. And the Torah, the Torah and the mitzvahs give you a model for combining both, because the, the ideas in the Torah are, are mind-blowing and are expansive, and if you haven't experienced that, then find another teacher, because, because it's out there, believe me. And, um, and yet, the, the regimen, the regimen, the spiritual regimen of following a halachic lifestyle is such that it really keeps you grounded. I mean, you need a watch. You need a watch, because you have to know what time it is, literally. Because there's a lot of things where it's sort of like, it's time to do this. And you know what? You just missed the time to do that. You know, so, yeah, believe it or not, you know, someone sent me a couple. And uh, it, was, it was kind of an interesting thing. Someone from the East Coast said, uh, I don't know why he called me, honestly. But he said, uh, there's this couple and um, they want to get married and they want to have a, uh, a religious wedding and... Their parents uh, just want to find out more about that, and so um, will you meet with them? So I said, okay, you know. So I, the, the four of them came over, the, the couple, and actually it may have been the six of them, right? Both sets of parents and, and the couple, so I think there were six of them there. And we sat down, and I just said to them, listen, there's certain, you know, you're getting ready for the wedding and everything like that. There's certain um, traditions that you should know about. Um, which is that it's, it's customary, at least in Brooklyn, for, um, for the mother-in-law, the, the, so that would be the, uh, the, 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 the husband-to-be, the husband's mother, right? For the mother-in-law to go out shopping and to buy a, uh, a, a, a candelabra, for Shabbos candlesticks, for the bride-to-be, right? And it's, it's customary for the, for the um, wife's parents, to buy the future husband a, uh, a watch, or maybe even a gold watch, if they can swing it, right? And we went over various things and everything like that. And, you know, I found out after the fact, th- this, isn't, this isn't why I'm telling you this, but as a PS, I found out after the fact that the parents were completely against a religious wedding. And that what the, the nature of this meeting was was to figure out whether they should have a, quote-unquote, you know, religious wedding or not. You know, one that follows Jewish law. And I didn't know that that was the topic of this meeting. <laughs> I, just, I just assumed that everyone was on board and was just telling them, 
just some of the things that they should know about in order to have this wedding. And But when they heard about these customs and everything like that, and I just gave you two because I want to go back to the watch in a moment, because they, they, they were just totally on board. They were like, yeah, this sounds great. This is what we want for our kids. You know? So that, that just sort of surprised me and fascinated me. But anyway, one of the things that I think is interesting is that they give the man a watch. <laughs> you know, I'm talking about being grounded, having your feet on the ground. If you want a Torah Jew, if you want to be a Torah Jew, you need a watch. Because a lot of the practices involve knowing what time it is. Time of the day, because you have to, there's certain uh, times where you pray and, and things like this. Yeah, yeah, you have to know. But this is while you're, while you're studying, like, you know, like the, the map of the cosmos and what's going on in, you know, like the spiritual realms, you know. So, but at the same time, if Mincha is at a quarter to four, you have to know it's at a quarter to four. This is while you're figuring out the structure of the heavens, right? And there's no contradiction. Because that's your feet in the ground and the head in the clouds, right? Isn't that interesting? Shabbat candles is really one of the only time demanded mitzvah for women to do. Oh, that's, yeah, so there's a kind of an overlap there, too. That's her. Yeah. That is the time related mitzvah. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and the light in the house and everything, yeah. So, so... So this light, this God consciousness is increasing, but we need vessels to hold the light. This is the idea. It's not just enough to have light. You need vessels to hold the light. And so, so there are things going on, and I want to talk about a couple of things that are going on in contemporary society today, which we don't have vessels to hold this light right now. And as a result, these things are manifesting themselves as negatives in society. All right, let me be very clear. I'm going to describe to you two areas that are negative right now. They're manifesting themselves as bad things. However, I'm going to then go on to make the point to show you how they're actually positives. But we just don't have the vessels to hold that light yet. Is that clear? So that's, that's what I'm going to do. And, you know, I, my mother told me there was a... a Something, someone named Huey Long, who is a famous uh, kind of uh, personality in American politics in the South, and she used to tell me, you know, if you give a talk, first you tell them what you're going to tell them, then you tell them, then you tell them what you told them. <laughs> so I, I, I rarely do that, but that's what's going on right now. So, I'm, I'm, <laughs> so I told you what I'm going to tell you. That these are negatives, but you'll see how they'll be positives, Okay. <clears throat> The first one is, again, in sort of the evolution of God consciousness that's going on in the world. And just to take a moment, just to further explain what I mean by that. When God created light, when God said, let there be light, if you look in the Torah commentaries, that light was not the light of the sun. That light is something that was very, a very, very exalted light. And God hid that away. God hid that away in the Torah because he saw that um, that, that light would essentially, that the, that the Rishayim, those who weren't worthy of, of basking in that light, um, would. And so as a result, God sort of tucked it away. He hid it away. And so it's called the Or News, which means the hidden light. And where did God put it? He put it in the Torah. And as the Bnei Asaskar points out, Actually, the Balaturim also says it in another way. 
that es ha'or, that means the light, that's referring to the, that's the language of the Torah, when it's talking about that original light, es ha'or is the gematria 613, because God put that original light into the Torah, into the mitzvahs itself. That's where it's hidden away. If you want to access that exalted light, you can, you can experience it by doing mitzvahs, by you feel something because you're plugging into that original light. When you study Torah, you're accessing that original light. That's why it, 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 you feel something. If you're doing it properly, you feel something. And um, that's because there's the, the, the soul is resonating with that original light. Now, God is going to bring that light back. And we can discuss, maybe if we have time later, what, that, what the implications of that means, what the return of that light means. But that's where it's going. And so over history, light is, the light is getting revealed more and more and more. So one, so one example of this. Actually, you know something, I want to make another point, maybe, maybe an even stronger point right now. You see, you see, you have to understand something, which is, which is, if you want to really understand the world, the most helpful thing to do is to begin with the premise of the oneness of God. You begin with the premise of the oneness of God, and that God is good, and that God is involved in every aspect of our lives. And if you use that as the premise for all explorations of reality, you will be on track toward the truth. You see, what a lot of people do, so I, what I would, the way I would formulate that in terms of understanding the Torah, that's starting with the Aleph. Aleph means one. The Aleph, <clears throat> which is before creation, before the world gets divided up into parts and becomes very Byzantine and confusing. If you start with the wholeness of the vision of reality, that oneness of God, and you use that as the premise, as the focal point, to try to understand what's around you, you will be on track toward understanding the truth. Most people don't do that. They start with the bays of creation. Remember, the Torah begins with the letter bays. Bays is the number two in Gamatria. It stands for duality. Heaven and earth. Good and evil. Physicality and spirituality. Right? All the, all the multiplicity. All the divisions and the veils and the, <clears throat> and the conflicts of the human condition. All the confusion. They begin with the bays of Breshit and they try to derive the Aleph, the oneness of God. In other words, they, they look at all the confusion and they say, how amidst all of this confusion can there be order? Don't do that. <laughs> I, you can do that. But it's, it's, it's much more beneficial. It's much more beneficial to begin with the Aleph, with the oneness that informs all of creation. And then you'll be able to see the order that is within everything else, as opposed to being caught in the whirlwind of confusion, of the bays of Rashid, of the creation, and then trying to figure out the olive. So, that's just a bit of practical advice. Now, understand, the bays of Rashid, maybe more than everything that I just explained, that too represents free choice. Free choice means you can choose good or you can choose evil. Remember, the Gemara says something very amazing. 
which is that a lot of our lives on a mazel level are determined at birth. A lot, a lot of our lives are determined. Now, it says through prayer and mitzvahs we can actually change this. You know, you know interestingly, the, the, the Gomorrah about mazel and, and, and Israel is in the Gomorrah is, is widely misquoted. People say, and, and this is the bottom line, by the way, but, but let's see how we get to this point in a moment. People say, well, there is no mazel be Israel. There is no... In other words, there is no um, kind of stated destiny among the, the, the lives of the Jewish people. We, our futures are unwritten. Okay? Now, that's not incorrect. That's not incorrect. But what the Gomorrah says is there are two opinions. There are two opinions. One opinion is, there is mazel v'yisrael. There absolutely is mazel. In other words, there is a certain faded, you know, destiny component. That's number one. The second opinion is, there is mazel, but through prayer and good deeds it can be changed. You understand? Even the opinion that says that there isn't, says there actually is, but it can be transcended. So both opinions actually say 100% that there is mazel to Israel. But the second opinion says it can be transcended through prayer and good deeds. Okay? So that's, that's just important to know that we do. And then there's a very clear Gomorrah, which talks about all the different aspects of our lives where there is, which, which, which are mazel related. Except, except the decision to be righteous or not. The decision to choose good over evil, to do the right thing, if you will. You know, my, my son, my nine-year-old, gave his first full Devar Torah this past Shabbos, sat on my lap, it was really sweet, and it was like five or ten minutes, and it was, he was saying over something that he had heard from his uh, teacher in class, and he really delivered it. It was really a beautiful thing. And um, one of the points was, he said, you know, someone comes... Like he was talking about teenagers, you know, teenage boys, you know, and they'll come down in the middle of the day on Shabbos and they'll be, they'll, they'll change out of their Shabbos clothes and they'll put on a, a t-shirt and gym shorts and you say, why did you do that? And then they'll say back to you, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? And you have to picture this, the nine-year-old, you know, saying, saying, repeating the words of his Rebbe. And he says, I say, what are you doing right? (laughs) (laughs) You may not be doing anything wrong, but what are you doing right? So anyway, you know, it was a little tough, but uh, it was was sweet to hear. Um, The the, the thing is, is that, um, the thing is, is that 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 choice to to do the right thing, if you will, that is not mazel related at all. You can, and even if you believe in mazel a thousand percent, that doesn't cover whether a person will be a good person or not be a good person. That is totally in your hands. That is totally in an individual's hands. So the base of Breshis represents probably more than anything else the fact that amidst creation itself, one maintains free choice. One maintains free choice. Now listen to this, because I want to make what I think is a very, very strong point. And hopefully we'll be able to get to the other trends in the zeitgeist. But, but first understand this. 
which is that God has deliberately structured the world in such a way where free choice is always maintained. You see, there are people who will tell you that they can prove God to you. I am personally of the belief that God cannot be proven. However, God is absolutely everywhere and He's in everything. And if you have an open heart and if you have an open mind, there's no place that you don't see God. It's, it's actually obvious that God exists. You don't have to be a genius. It's, it's obvious that God exists. It's obvious that there's a structure to this world. It's obvious that God created this world for a purpose. What, He created it for His entertainment? It's like so cruel and disgusting. The thought itself is disgusting. You know? So, it's, of course, this world is created as an expression of love and, and of goodness. And, of course, there's a meaning to our lives and to the destiny of the world. Of course. Of course. However, God created this world where he gave us this awesome ability to find him. That's our, that's our privilege. That's our glory. That we're able to arrive at the idea of God. Through free choice. This is, this is amazing. This is a gift that he gave to us. The angels, for the angels who don't have free choice, God's presence is absolutely obvious. So they have no merit that they can uh, incur. They have no merit. Because God is all around them. And it's, it's clear. It's obvious. But for us to be in this world and to arrive at godliness, is, this is the highest thing. And this is the greatest gift that God gave to us. But now understand this, because we're building towards something. Which is, that, which is that the more revelation there is of godliness in this world, the more God gives us the free choice to question whether that is in fact a proof of God. Let me, let me explain more clearly. What I'm really building to is science. You see... Science is the most, I believe, you know, I, I saw this uh, from Rabbi Schatz, but I, I think that this is totally true. Science is practical Kabbalah. It's just using a completely different vocabulary and a different set of paradigms. But science is the most articulate description and proof of God in this world. And if you begin with the premise of the oneness of God, as I was advocating, you see that, that science is completely in great detail describing God in a definitive way. However, what did we just say? That God designed the world in such a way that free choice is maintained at every single point. Therefore, people say science is proof that God doesn't exist. Because science is the highest revelation of the proof of God in this world. Therefore, it's pointed to as the hallmark for the argument that God doesn't exist at all. In order for us to be able to maintain free choice in this world. Do you understand? Do you understand? What is science? Science is the utmost, most detailed, most provable description of the way God works in this world. And yet, the way the modern mind, which becomes confused, which dwells within the bays and then speculates about the olive, right? We go, well, maybe that, eh, what, well, eh, I don't know, me, you know? But it's the other way around. All right, so, so now with that in mind, 
let's, let's go further. So, so I want to talk about the 24-hour news cycle, CNN, Facebook, and the coming of Mashiach. <laughs> okay? So, 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 so again, trends in the re- revelation of God consciousness. Because one of these trends, you know, on an outright spiritual level, is the, is the outgrowth of Hasidus, as, as I was saying, which is the, the, un, the understanding of the inner workings of reality, which is what Hasidus is, right? Um, technology, we see technology absolutely exploding, exploding, but that's, again, all acquainting us increasingly with the outrageousness, the awesomeness of God. Because what are we doing? We're making more and more fabulous telescopes, which are going further and further into the universe, which are showing us how giantly, you know, just the, the, the gazillions of, of universes and, 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 and galaxies there are and all the rest. Or, or these, going the other way, these, you know, electron microscopes, which are showing us just how infinite, you know, you know a piece of wood is. You know, so, so, so science is, is, is revealing more and more the, the, the glory of Hashem, right? But again, within the fabric that, within the framework that we always have to maintain free choice, right? Right? So that, so that, that these proofs can be disregarded, right? So, so now the 24-hour news cycle, I think, was a, a, a major milestone. And I, I, I haven't, this kind of came to me this week, but you, you'll see where I'm going with this. You see, what happened? What happened with the 24-hour news cycle? There isn't 24 hours worth of news to report. That's the bottom line. And I can tell you, as someone who works in the media, nightly news shows have to fill the time. They need something to report because they can't just sit there and you know go, well, you know, nothing really. Hey, what's new with you guys out there in the TV audience? You know. You know, they can't do that. They have to fill the time. Magazines have to fill the pages. They have to. Newspapers have to fill the pages. They have to report about something. So they'll find something. They'll find something to report. They must do that. As a consequence, since there isn't 24 hours worth of news a day, as a consequence, what's happened is, is that they've increasingly reported things that we would call meaningless. They've, they've had to expand their, their, their horizon, so to speak, in order to, to grab stories that are not of significance. Right? But by virtue of the fact that they're broadcasting them in this august format, right? You know, it's a distinguished-looking person behind a podium with all sorts of blinking charts behind them, and, you know, on monitors, and they put them in airports and in bars and all around the world, right? The fact that it's being broadcast around the world, you know, you know, the, you know, the, my, my, my current pet peeve, the, the, the engagement rings of celebrities, right, becomes a news story, right? That, that, that actually becomes a news story. Okay, so, so, so you have the ele- elevation of meaninglessness. Now again, what I told you was, I'm going to show you how these are negatives right now. Right now, society is experiencing these things as negative, because it seems that 
we're, we're more and more obsessed or preoccupied with things of, of, uh, of an increasingly uh, trivial nature. And as the Internet now has joined the 24-hour news cycle, and, and they've got more leeway, they can report on even more meaningless things, seemingly, right? Because they've got a broader canvas. <clears throat> now, I'll give you another trend, which is, um, re- which is really kind of, uh, kind of trim- sim- symbolized right now by Facebook. And, um, and this is a phrase which is not mine, and you can read up on this if you like, but it's been widely reported this trend in society, which is the end of privacy, or the death of privacy. And what that means is that people are um, putting pictures of themselves uh, on the Internet, which are inappropriate, um, are exposing information about their lives, which um, used to be private information, is no longer private information, um, that the companies themselves are taking all of where you go on the Internet and selling them to all sorts of advertisers without your permission and without your knowledge. And so everyone is, is knowing everything about each other. The end of privacy. Okay? Now I want to show you... Now again, what, 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 what I started out to say was, we, this is, society is experiencing these things as a negative right now, because we don't have the vessels to hold the light. But that ultimately, I believe these things, and I'll show you how in a moment, I believe these things are indicative of something greater that's going on. That there's a spiritual agenda behind these things, which are leading toward a greater God consciousness. We just don't have the vessels to hold them yet. And so, let me me tell you what I mean. Let's begin with this 24-hour news cycle. That that, um, all of this stuff that's meaningless is, is being reported as though it has meaning. Right? All right? Now, here's the positive. You ready? The positive is, listen very carefully, nothing in the world is meaningless. Nothing in the world is meaningless. Nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing is meaningless. You see? And this is one of the hallmarks of the Torah point of view. And one of the reasons why, in case you're wondering, why there's so much Torah law, so much halacha, why it... It, 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 it permeates every aspect of our life. And the reason is because there is no moment that can't be elevated. There is no such thing as a secular moment. There is no... That's why we have a Torah way to put on socks and shoes. That's why we have a blessing that we say after we go to the bathroom. Because there is no trivial moment in our lives. Nothing is trivial. Everything can be elevated and sanctified even seemingly the most mundane thing. And so the fact that all of these things now in, in the news right now, things that seemingly are meaningless are being reported that they're meaningful is because we don't have the vessels yet, the proper framework to show the world that everything is meaningful. So right now it's being manifest itself in a, in a sort of a corrupt, crooked way. But the underlying spiritual narrative that's being expressed is the fact that everything is meaningful. We just haven't arrived at that stage of history yet where the actual truth of what's going on is being understood by the populace. Now let's go to the next thing. The, the death of privacy. Can I tell you something? Let me illustrate it with a, with a famous story. 
You may know it. I, 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 I believe I heard it in the name of the Chovetz Chaim. Maybe he's the figure in the story, or maybe he told it, or maybe it's another rabbi altogether. I don't know. But the story goes like this, a famous story. There's a wagon driver, and the wagon driver is not exactly, you know, like the greatest tzaddik. He's not a holy man. He's, you know, kind of just a, a guy, right? And uh, he's, uh, he's taking this rabbi with him. And uh, they go through, you know, they're in the kind of the countryside, and seemingly no one's really around, and uh, the wagon driver's hungry, and they go by this orchard, and there's uh, fruit on this tree, and the wagon driver stops the cart, and he says to the rabbi, I'm going to go and get something to eat. Right? Now, there's, there's a word for that going to get something to eat, that's called theft. <laughs> he's going to basically take this person's fruit that doesn't belong to him, and he's going to eat it. Okay, that's stealing. So, so he says to the rabbi, let me know if anyone is coming, so you'll be like my lookout, and, and uh, if anyone's coming, let me know. So he goes and he reaches for the apple, and the rabbi yells, they're watching, they're watching! And the man pulls back his hand and he looks around and he doesn't see anyone. And he's confused and he gives a confused look to the rabbi. And the rabbi points up to heaven and he says, They're watching, they're watching. <laughs> right? So, so what does this mean, the death of privacy? What does this mean? The reality is, is that there is no such thing as a private moment. There is no such thing as a private moment. Every single thing, wherever we go, we're standing before God. We're the one who loves us the most. It's not Big Brother who we're standing before. It's not some tyrant with a whip who's waiting for us to make a mistake so that he can zap us. It's the one who loves us the most. Wherever we go, we're standing before God. Wherever we go. There is no such thing as privacy. There's no privacy. Rabbi, Rabbi Green tells a story. He says, you know, imagine you're in, you're in a room and you're with your, your child and you say to your child, you know, close the door, I want to be alone. The child will close the door and then say to you, okay, we're alone. Right? Stay in the room with you. It doesn't, doesn't get the message like, no, I, no, no, no. I, I want to, if you say, he says, if you say to your mom, close the door, I want to be alone. Your mom will close the door and say, okay, we're alone. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not what I meant. And if you say to God, you know, God, I just feel like being alone right now. God will say back to you, okay, we're alone. No, 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 God, I, I just want to be by myself. Okay, we're by ourselves now. <laughs> so, so, so again, because we don't have the vessels to hold this awesome light, Yet, in terms, of, in terms of the spreading out and the universality of God consciousness, we're experiencing it as the death of privacy. But, but again, there's an awesome spiritual narrative that's being played out right now. It's just people aren't hip to it yet, which is that people are going to realize everything is meaningful and that wherever I go, I'm standing before God. And that's a messianic consciousness. That's, that's, that's great. That's great. 
But because we're not there yet, because we don't have the vessels to hold this consciousness yet, it's, it's coming out as, as, as societal negatives, which in their own way they are right now. See, there's no contradiction. There's no contradiction. So, so let me just um, finish up with, uh, with something sort of like getting back to the here and now. We just read about the splitting of the Red Sea, and uh, there's something to take from that. I mean, right? A million things to take from it, but, you know, one of the things that the, that the rabbis teach is that the reason why the Red Sea split was because it saw the, um, the bones of Yosef. And um, I'll explain that in a moment. There's something very, very beautiful, which is that... Uh, you see, what's reported, what's, what's, see, Yosef, Yosef is awesome. Yosef is awesome. Yosef, then this may have been the only time this ever happened in Jewish history, by the way. There was a period in Jewish history where Joseph was the only Jew in exile. Because his whole family was in Israel, and he got sold into slavery. So there was a period in Jewish history where there was only one Jew in exile, and it was Yosef. That in itself is sort of remarkable, something we're thinking about. And Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach says that Yosef gave all Jews for all time in the future the strength to remain Jewish in exile. Interestingly, the gematria of the word Yosef is the same as the gematria of the word Zion, Zion, which means Jerusalem. So Joseph and Zion, the fact that even when he wasn't in Israel, had this, had this Zion, had this Jerusalem energy even outside Israel, so that we could continue to stay connected to, to Israel. You know? And, um, and you know something? Yosef says as his dying thing, he says, listen, you know, you know, Yaakov, when Yaakov died, he says, take me out of Egypt and bury me in the cave of the patriarchs, Morsa Machpelah. But Yosef, for whatever reason, said, you know something, God is going to redeem all of you guys, as he's promised, and as he's promised us in today's day and age. God is going to redeem you, and when that time comes, take my bones out of Egypt and bring them with you. So there you see the same dynamic being played out, that Yosef stayed in exile with the Jews until we left. Again, on some level, giving us that strength, on some level. Right? Now, what did the Jews do, what did the Egyptians, rather, do with the bones of Yosef? So the rabbis tell us very, very clearly what they did. They, they mummified Yosef, they put him into a, a, a sarcophagus of some sort, you know, one of these, you know, coffins, and they put him on the bottom of the Nile River. Different reasons why, but the, 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 I think the clearest idea why is because the Nile, they worshipped as a god, and the Nile was sort of their, their god of livelihood, if you will, because it would overflow, and the silt from the, the nutrients in the silt of the, of the Nile River would overflow, and they would fertilize all the ground around the Nile, and then the, the crops would grow. Well, Yosef, who fed the entire world, was kind of like a god of food, if you will. So, if you will, 
Doesn't it make perfect sense? Well, we'll take that Yosef energy. This is from the sort of the idol worshiping perspective, right? We'll take that Yosef energy, seal it up, put it on the bottom of the Nile energy, and that's man. That's that's good stuff, right? That it makes sense. There's a logic to it. So 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 Yosef was on the bottom of the Nile River, and while the Jews were getting the gold and silver, right? Which which the rabbis explain was the payment, by the way, for all of their forced labor that they had done on behalf of Egyptian society. Well, they were getting their, their back wages, basically. Moshe went to get the bones of Yosef. Moshe kept the promise to Yosef. And uh, the sages call Moshe wise for doing that, because while everyone else was kind of getting their paycheck, Moshe was getting the bones of Yosef, which is like, right? whole another level. So, so Moshe gets the... I'm sorry? Yeah. 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 Yosef is buried in Shechem. So Yosef, so Yosef gets carried out and the rabbis teach that when the, when the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds, whatever it is, when it saw the bones of Yosef, it split in half. Okay? Now, what's the connection? What's the connection? So, I heard Reb Shlomo explain, in the name of the Ishbitzer Rebbe, that the sea saw that Yosef changed his nature, and so the sea changed its nature. How did Yosef change his nature? Well, you see it in a couple of ways. First of all, Yosef was one of the most physically beautiful people that ever existed. And people, you know, were like, they look at him and their eyes were like glued. They couldn't like look away. He was so beautiful. And you know who else knew how beautiful Yosef was? Yosef. (laughs) Yosef also knew how beautiful he was. And it said that he would, you know, he was part of the admiration club. (laughs) You know, he was a kid. And the Torah calls him a, a nar because he hadn't... You know, I mean, I guess if someone is that beautiful, that's, that's, a, that's a real challenge in their life. That is a challenge in their life. And it's a real thing. We see it in today's society. It's not a small thing. But Yosef evolved past that. Spiritually speaking, he worked on himself and he got past that. And in fact, not only did he become, stop being inwardly directed or superficially directed, but he's the one who saves the entire world. He feeds the entire world. That's the greatest expression of being outwardly directed. And he forgives like this ridiculous crime, seemingly, that his brothers did to him with a full heart. I mean, he becomes the most outwardly directed person. So that's one incredible, incredible change that Yosef does through working on himself. And he's in prison for years and years and years and years. I mean, a very hard life. Another aspect is is that Potiphar, the, the, the wife of Potiphar, tried to seduce him like crazy. And said she'd change her clothes five times a day and say, just, we don't have to do anything, just lie down next to me. I mean, she, it, was like, it was like a hundred lions coming to attack him. And somehow he was able to withstand his own, his own needs or whatever it was to, to, to be able to to stay focused. So he, 
He changed his nature. And so the sea changed its nature. The sea saw Yosef who changed his nature, and so the sea split and changed its nature. Okay? So what does this say to us? What it says to me is, to the extent that we change our nature, the world around us changes. Even in surprising or perhaps miraculous ways. And how do we do it in a practical way? So, the Alter Rebbe of Lubavitch says that basically if you take... Those of you who have made fires really understand how, how, powerful a, uh, how powerful a metaphor this is, just because of its simplicity, but it's so accurate. If you have a very thick log, you know, if you have a thick log, and let's say you light a match underneath it, you know, forget it. A million years from the time that you have for the match to burn for this thick log to light up, it's never going to happen. It's simply never going to happen. Right? So how do you do it? How do you do it? So if you break down the log into small, small pieces, then you can light it with a match. So, so our, our, our work, our challenge, our, our privilege, our, our glory, is let's, let's look into ourselves. Let's... let's Let's think about something about ourselves that we would like to change or make better. Maybe it's something we're already doing right, but we want to take it to the next level, whatever it is. And break it down. Don't break it down into a small piece. Just think of one small thing within that, within that category. One small doable thing that we can do within that category. And let's start there. And this will create a fire, and this will create a light, and this will make a transformative effect where we'll begin to bring that, that, that consciousness of God's oneness in this world to the entire world. Okay.